From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention estimates 1.2 million people in the United States are living with HIV and that one in five of those people are unaware that they have the virus that causes AIDS. Today, I'm joined by a scientist who is contributing to our understanding of HIV. Dr. Harry E. Taylor is an assistant professor of microbiology and immunology at Upstate. Welcome to HealthLink on Air, Dr. Taylor. Oh, well, thanks for having me. Glad to be here. Some of your research has increased the understanding of how HIV replicates. Before I ask you about that, can you give us some history about when HIV was discovered and how scientists connected it to AIDS? Absolutely. Uh, and so we sort of uh, have to go back in time into uh, the early 80s and what physicians noticed that there was a collection of young men um, and that have sex with men primarily uh, in California, San Francisco area, that all had very similar um, disease symptoms. Uh, and so what was really intriguing about it and also unfortunate is that these individuals had the occurrence of a, a very rare uh, pneumonia that's caused by a fungus. And typically these individuals are uh, impacted uh, or infected with this fungus if they have severe immunodeficiencies. And so that was really a, a first clue as to the origin or at least uh, how this disease was involved in impacting the immune system. Um, and so with those efforts and NIH scientists and our friends uh, in France collectively were able to isolate a virus from the blood of individuals that had these similar symptoms. Uh, and so we had this really interesting um, uh, collection of efforts uh, that converged uh, with the identification of the virus that was associated uh, with this immunodeficiency. So it's a virus that affects the person's immune system, right? It makes the immune system stop working? It actually, unfortunately, in a very clever way, it disarms the immune system. Uh, it infects or disrupts, destroys, kills the cells in our immune system that are necessary to mount an effective immune response against any other bacteria or virus. I've heard that HIV is actually a retrovirus. What is that and how does that differ from a regular virus? So it's intriguing. So I'm gonna take you back to early uh, biology <laughs> when we learned that, uh, so viruses have genes just like humans have genes. Uh, and the genes are the uh, instructions that would allow our cells in our bodies to make certain proteins. And the proteins are what actually do the work of the genes. And so the things that make our hair blonde, the proteins that make our, our eyes blue, uh, the very nature of what makes us unique uh, is encoded in our DNA. Uh, and so typically those instructions are read and interpreted by the cells to make a specific protein, but in order to make that protein, the DNA has to be made into RNA first. And so the, the, it's in, in human cells, it's only the information is translated from DNA to RNA to protein. 
So HIV and other retroviruses uh, have the unique capacity to do this in reverse. So they actually can make, start with RNA and make DNA from the RNA. Uh, and is that uh, a feature that anoints them with the title uh, retrovirus because they do this whole genetic processing in reverse. Why is understanding replication of HIV important? It's, it's critical for us to understand how any pathogen replicates because the thought is, is that the more we know about how something functions, it can, it can be anything from, say, viruses to, say, a car engine, uh, the better we know how to, say, fix or disrupt the normal functionings. And so we want to completely understand how this virus works so that we know exactly how to target it, we know exactly what its Achilles heel is, so we can design drugs that specifically attack that weakness. Uh, and so this is why basic research is highly uh, important uh, to understand things like viruses, uh, including things like the, the virus that causes COVID, which we'll talk about a bit later. So, Well, how do you think your research on replication might lead to new medications? Is that your goal? Absolutely. Uh, and so the work that we have been able to accomplish um, was... I think it was. I think it was pretty important. Uh, it added a little, uh, uh, a little tidbit to the knowledge as far as how HIV needs certain resources that are provided by the cells it infects. I mentioned to you earlier that HIV targets our immune system, uh, and so HIV, like every virus, depends on the cells that it infects to provide building blocks building blocks that it would make progeny viruses. And when it infects the T cells, when it enters that T cells, particularly an activated T cell, that T cell has cupboards full of building blocks for the virus that allows it to make additional copies of itself, which then allows it to go on and infect other T cells. And so essentially usurps uh, these building blocks in the T-cell that normally allow the T-cell to make more copies of itself. And so it's an arms race here. So the T-cell that the virus infects uses its uh, stored resources to expand its army, and the virus, which has a leg up because it replicates faster, infects those cells, uh, essentially pillage the resources of that cell to make more copies of itself to go on and to kill more T cells before they mount an objective immune response that is designed to rid the body of it. So it sounds like anything that could interrupt that process would potentially be helpful if you can figure out a way to interrupt it. Absolutely. And we've identified uh, several targets in the lab that in theory would do just that. This is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with Dr. Harry E. Taylor. He's an assistant professor of microbiology and immunology at Upstate. We've been talking about HIV, but now I'd like to ask you about SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID-19. 
if I understand correctly, this virus has a spike protein that allows it to get into human cells. Can you describe how the existing vaccines are designed to work against this spike protein? Sure. SARS-CoV-2 is a is a member of a class of viruses called coronaviruses. And these coronaviruses, if you look at them under a very powerful microscope, electron microscope, you'll notice that they have what looks like a crown on them. And when you, in this crown, essentially is made of these proteins that emanate from the surface of this virus. And these proteins that emanate from the surface of the virus that make this crown are the spike proteins. And so they like look like little spikes on the surface of this virus. And those spike proteins are what allows that virus to interact with cells in the respiratory tract and other uh, regions or other places in the body to target cells for infection. And so the vaccine that has been designed to uh, stimulate a, an effective immune response against SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID-19. It's It allows, it's an RNA virus. So we talked earlier about RNA and DNA. And so this RNA virus, which is made by uh, two major companies, Moderna and Pfizer, um, and it turns out that this RNA vaccine provides cells with the instructions to make SARS-CoV-2 spike protein. And so what's intriguing about this is that the body is exposed to this spike protein in the absence of a deadly virus. And so even in the absence of the full virus, the immune system becomes able to train itself to make uh, an immune response against that spike protein so that when it encounters the real deal, it's already been prepped and primed and it has an army of T cells and other cells that make antibodies that recognizes the spike protein and blocks and neutralizes the virus on site. And we've heard reports that this is very effective. Extremely effective, actually impressive. I can remember early on in the pandemic, uh, Dr. Anthony Fauci, the head of uh, NIH uh, Infectious Diseases uh, Institute, he at that time said he would be happy with the vaccine that was 80% effective. But it turns out that the Moderna and Pfizer vaccines are both about 95% effective. So this is like hitting a home run the park. Uh, so we are lucky to uh, have scientists that were hot on the case and had a really effective strategy about making a vaccine that can be uh, fully expedited. But now we're hearing about new mutations of coronavirus. How, how worried should we be about that? We should be concerned. And from the standpoint that I think it provides uh, healthcare professionals, scientists, governmental agencies to do more surveillance, because it turns out that in the prior administration, uh, it really wasn't a high priority. It wasn't a high priority for us to determine uh, how this virus is changing uh, within our borders. And so we're really blindsided by all of this. 
But now it seems that with the new administration and the new SARS-CoV-2 COVID task force, uh, they are now uh, putting forth an effort to have a higher level of surveillance that will allow us to monitor the evolution of, uh, and potential dangers of new uh, mutant viruses. And, and it turns out that uh, there was a strain that was, or variant that was initially identified in uh, the UK. Uh, and there was another subsequent strain that was identified in South Africa. Uh, it turns out that the vaccines that I mentioned produced by Moderna and Pfizer are effective against the UK strain, but it seems that the uh, efficacy it has, is diminished when we look at uh, the South African strain. Now, these are early studies now, uh, so in primarily in vitro studies. And so in these studies, they were able to uh, take plasma or serum from individuals that were successfully vaccinated with their vaccine, and they used that sera. And what they determined was that sera was capable of neutralizing the UK strain pretty effectively, but the ability of the sera from protected individuals to neutralize this South African strain was reduced by 60%. And this is under um, fully optimized uh, conditions in the laboratory. And so the jury is still out uh, to determine exactly how well they're gonna protect people from natural exposure um, in their own environments. Well, let me ask you, the influenza vaccine every year is a little bit different. It's changed based on what's circulating, right? So do you envision that this could be similar with a COVID vaccine that would have to be tweaked each year? Well, uh, many experts feel that that may be a possibility, but the we can sort of take solace in knowing that this coronavirus, if we get a handle on it early on, every virus needs a host or a human or an animal to replicate. And the more opportunities that these viruses have to replicate or to infect people, it gives them a additional time to evolve and to make mutations. And so the coronaviruses as a family, they really don't mutate very much. And unlike influenza virus or HIV, these viruses mutate in such a way, HIV being on the, um, on the extreme end, uh, it's very difficult to design a vaccine against HIV because it's in any individual, there are thousands or millions of different variants in one person. And here we are with SARS-CoV-2, we have a couple of variants pop up, but that's expected. It, it, this was something that we knew was gonna happen because millions of people across the globe are infected with this virus. And so as a virus infects people, it evolves. And so at this point, I think that uh, now we're aware of these additional variants. And right now, Moderna and Pfizer and another company that I didn't mention earlier, Novavax, which has a, dish, has a different type of vaccine, are already making variations of their vaccines that will be more effective against these strains. And so I, I don't think that we have a huge reason to worry because the science uh, is on par 
and moving forward so that we'll have the tools to design better or more effective, more specific vaccines that we move forward. Can I ask you why you chose a career in science for this field? Well, initially, uh, to be honest with you, I started out as a kid thinking that I wanted to be a neurosurgeon, for, but for all the wrong reasons. And so as an undergraduate at Morehouse College, I, decided, I was a pre-med track bio major, and I talked to upperclassmen at my college, ones that were uh, known to have gotten into some of the best medical schools in the country. And I asked them, say, hey, you know, you got into Harvard, you got into Duke and Johns Hopkins. What did you do? What was the magic recipe? And my uh, senior friend said to me, uh, elder statesman at the school, well, you know, these are research-oriented medical schools. And if you do, if you have a research experience, you'll look a lot more competitive and attractive to their admissions panel. And so I went ahead and I pursued a research opportunity on campus that led to additional research opportunities on summers. Um, and I fell in love with it. And so I was bit by the research bug and I decided instead of going to Hopkins for medical school to be a physician, I decided to be a scientist in an academic um, <laughs> institution. So that's the story. So how do you describe the focus of your work in microbiology and immunology? Uh, and so I would describe it as trying to learn how viruses interact with the immune system in order to design better therapeutics that target these viruses. This has been very informative. I appreciate your explanations. Thank you to Dr. Harry E. Taylor. He's an assistant professor of microbiology and immunology at Upstate. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air.